Okay, well, here we are returning to Matthew's gospel after a hiatus, and what I wanted to do was to briefly reorient us to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, chapters 2 to 12, and then to embark upon an exposition of sorts of Matthew 5, 13 to 16. And as I do so, I'm aware that um, we're going to be covering quite a lot of ground, and we're going to be spending a fair bit of time reorienting ourselves to the Sermon on the Mount. Because the Sermon on the Mount is not simply a, a sermon that has a kind of a, a, a life of its a standalone life apart from the one who gave it. Um, it's crucially important that we understand the Jesus who gave it, because the Jesus who gave it is an essential part of the message. More on that in a few minutes. But for the sake of any who might be concerned, which includes myself, that I might not be uh, simple and straightforward in the communication of a message this afternoon from Matthew 5, 13 to 16, I've given you here in bold um, the uh, summary message of that sermon, which will come uh, between uh, half and two-thirds of our way through our time this afternoon. And the message of five, Matthew 5, 13 to 16 might be summarized as this. How are we to impact the world for and with Jesus? And I've underlined R and we because Jesus seems to give us little choice. He says, you are the salt of the, of the earth. You are the light of the world. And as we'll see in a few minutes, those are metaphors for impacting the world on behalf of Jesus. And the answer to the question, how are we to impact the world for and with Jesus, is by doing good deeds for all to see to the glory of God. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, even in hearing that answer, you might think, well, wait a minute. Uh, not too much longer in the Sermon on the Mount, we're we hear about how we're supposed to practice our good deeds in private. Jesus spends much of Matthew chapter 6 talking about the importance of not uh, practicing your righteousness, saying your prayers before other people in such a way that they take notice. So this might look to be a contradiction, but it is not, because the difference and the reconciliation lies in uh, the intention of the person who is doing these things. We are allowed to do our good deeds for all to see, and we're told that we need to do so in Matthew 5, 13 to 16, to the glory of God. Jesus's criticism of those in Matthew chapter 6 was that they were doing it for the admiration of others. And Jesus's point, as we shall see in coming weeks, is that they already have their reward. They have the admiration that they're seeking. So uh, there's no contradiction in us uh, hearing, as we shall study in a few minutes when we come to look at the passage proper, that uh, we are to impact the world by showcasing good deeds, by practicing righteousness before the world, not so that others will admire us, of course, but to the glory of God and to the furtherance of his kingdom. But I want to begin by stepping back and reviewing uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, to do that, I just want to remind us of some of the things that we have been through um, as we uh, have been looking at Matthew's gospel. In summary, Matthew presents us with a Jesus who comprehensively fulfills 
um, all kinds of things in the Old Testament, Old Testament events, Old Testament prophecies, and even embodies Old Testament events and prophets. I think a good way to get a handle on what Matthew is emphasizing is uh, by recalling with me um, something that uh, happened to me when I was leading a vacation Bible school uh, several years ago in a small town a few hours north of here. The theme of the vacation Bible school had to do with um, Jesus, uh, not surprisingly. And at the end of the week, uh, one of the parents who was a Christian came to um, this young boy who would have been probably five or six, not much older than that. And the father uh, said, uh, who did you learn about? And uh, the child responded um, by saying, well, Jesus. And the man said, well, what did you learn about Jesus? And he said, oh, dad, well, he's super everything. And as I thought about that word uh, and expression, super everything, I think Matthew would agree. Um, Jesus is um, in the line of Abraham. He's in the line of David. He's a prophet. He's a uh, fulfiller of events. He's a child of the virgin birth, as prophesied in Isaiah. And Matthew, time after time, gives us one image and one institution and one character where Jesus explodes by way of fulfillment of the Old Testament. But as we come to look at the Sermon on the Mount, I want us to think specifically about three figures that Matthew points out. And I believe that as we go through these three figures, Jesus as the promised future Moses, Jesus as the promised Messiah King, and Jesus as the prophet in Isaiah, who will inaugurate a grace and light-filled utopian kingdom, that um, you'll see how easily these pave the way for us understanding the Sermon on the Mount, um, hopefully better than we have before. First of all, then, Jesus is the promised future Moses. I was interested to note in uh, the commentaries a summary by Austin Ferrar, where he compares the book of Exodus's Moses with the book of Matthew's new Moses. And as you'll see in the, the line uh, that, uh, that follow here, um, this line here, there's a parallel. In Exodus, you have a slaughter of infants followed by the return of the hero, followed by passage through water, followed by temptation in the wilderness, and finally uh, with a mountain of law giving. And Matthew's structure is remarkably similar. And his point, of course, is to show us the new Moses, an eschatological super everything prophet, as it were, Jesus. And so we have in Matthew chapter two, the slaughter of the, instant, of the infants, uh, the return of the hero Jesus from Egypt, fulfilling a prophecy in Hosea, passage through the waters of baptism and the crossing of the Jordan, the temptation in Matthew 4, 1 to 11, and here in chapter 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, as you recall, Jesus goes up onto a mountain, and it's clear that he's about to give a message. And so we're to think of Moses as we, um, as we embark upon this, uh, this sermon. Now, an important background to the text is one that I mentioned a few weeks ago when I was preaching from Matthew chapter 4 and giving some of the background to Jesus. In Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 18, uh, which I think and hope I can pull up here, bear with me for just a second. I need to move the gallery of people 
Uh, oops. <laughs> All right, give me a sec. Where have we gone? There we go. I hope you're feeling comfortable. Uh, and uh, if you're feeling as though um, you have reason to be intimidated, that's all going to just slide away here. Um, I can't pull up Deuteronomy 18, but I have it. And in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 18, there's a promise that God gives to Moses. And God says to Moses, in essence, um, I'm going to appoint someone like you to be a prophet among the people. And so God says uh, to Moses, remember the background is that the people, when they went to Mount Sinai, they just couldn't stand to hear God directly. And they wanted somebody to mediate the message of God and the word of God. And so God said, fine, okay, I have used you, Moses, as a mediator by which I'm giving my word, and I'll continue to do that. In the future, I will appoint a prophet who is like you, who will speak God's words, my words, on your behalf. And so uh, Jesus is conscious of the fact that he is the new Moses. And think of the way in which he brings both the divine and the human together. Um, we're promised in Deuteronomy 18 that God's words, the words of God himself, will be mediated through a human being who is a prophet like unto Moses. And so here we have the best of two worlds. We're hearing the words of God from a human being, Jesus, who is our mediator, someone to whom we can relate. But he is at the same time uttering the very words of God as he tells us and gives us the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he is going to speak in continuity with the law of Moses, but he's going to intensify it as only God could do and would do. So here in Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 18, we have an accessible human who definitively speaks the words of God. Note where the setting is. The setting is, of course, on a mountain, which reminds us of Moses going up Mount Sinai. Jesus is portrayed then as a prophet like unto Moses, but he's also portrayed as a promised Messiah king, as a promised Messiah king. I reminded us a few weeks ago of another passage in Deuteronomy, the chapter before, where God promised not only a future Moses, who would interpret and speak God's law in his behalf, but he promised a future king. And he says, this king is going to be somebody who doesn't amass armies. He's not going to come and kind of conquer worldly kingdoms, but he's going to be someone who meditates upon the law and who puts himself under the authority of the law, but is clearly someone who recites the law and grows in wisdom and stature as a result. And so when Jesus goes up on the mountain, he's going up as Moses, but he's also going up in fulfillment of Psalm 1. Now, uh, Psalm 1 is usually thought of as being a wisdom hymn. But Psalm 1 has been paired together with Psalm 2, which is probably the most famous of all messianic passages, to give us kind of a two-sided portrait of the Messiah. The Messiah, according to Psalm 2, as we know, is one who is going to be a king of the Jews. He's going to uh, be not taken seriously, but uh, the nations of the world are going to realize that this king of the Jews, who doesn't appear to be very important, is actually the son of God, and that the fate of the entire world lies in his hands. 
But Psalm 1 appends something to the, to the ministry and the message of the Messiah. And that is, he will fulfill what we read about in Deuteronomy chapter 17. So at the beginning of Psalms, we get a statement from someone with whom we are to identify with the Messiah, who says, blessed is the one who X. Blessed is the one who Y. And these are the exact same words that we find in the Beatitudes, at least in terms of pronouncing blessings. So Jesus, when he begins the Sermon on the Mount, is a Moses figure, and he's about to articulate the law, which comes after the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in chapter 17, right through much of the sermon. But for now, Jesus is adopting initially the role of one who pronounces Beatitudes, and as we know from Matthew chapter 5, verses 2 to 13, or 2 to 12, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, uh, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers, and so on. Well, what's surprising about this is that um, Jesus's Beatitudes, or the Beatitudes in, the, in, in Psalm 1, and also in a text from Qumran, and in the book of Sirach, have this kingly figure pronouncing beatitudes that extol the wise and that say, if you meditate upon the law, you will be wise. But Jesus, unlike the beatitudes in Psalm 1, does something unusual. And uh, this caught us off guard, or at least it should have caught us off guard when we were looking at Matthew before. Jesus talks about, blessed are those who mourn. Uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, blessed are those not who are righteous, but who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So Jesus, as the promised Messiah King, is doing something different. There's no mistaking he's Moses. There's no mistaking he's the Messiah. But Jesus is at the same time fulfilling a third category or a third figure. And that figure is, thirdly, that of the prophet in Isaiah, who will inaugurate a grace and light-filled utopian kingdom for the Gentiles and others in darkness. Uh, think of the story of um, John the Baptist's disciples coming to Jesus on behalf of John, of all people, saying, John has a question, are you the Messiah, or should we be looking for someone else? And Jesus tells the disciples to go back to John and to say, remember Isaiah. I am one who is going to give sight to the blind, who is going to give good news to those who are hard done by. And so we have three main motifs as the background to the Sermon on the Mount here. Jesus as Moses, Jesus as the Messiah. And this is going to be important when we come to take a look at verses 13 to 16 in a few minutes, because it will provide an important background to the meaning of salt and especially light. Jesus comes as one who is going to inaugurate a grace and light-filled utopian kingdom. Now, some of the texts as background to this are Isaiah 42, 6 to 7, and Isaiah 61. And these passages speak of um, one who brings good news to those who mourn, one who brings glad tidings to the poor, and so on. So here we see Jesus taking on these three roles and just exploding the boundaries of Old Testament fulfillment, as it were. Notice that the setting of the Messianic king is, again, a mountain. And here I've jumped back to number two. And that mountain is Zion. 
my colleague Terry Donaldson at the uh, at Wycliffe College did his dissertation on the mountain motif in the book of Matthew, and he argues that the Mount of Galilee and the Mount uh, upon which Jesus gives the Great Commission are uh, to be understood uh, as Zion as well as uh, Sinai. So there's a combination of motifs here. And notice when it comes to this uh, prophet who's going to announce good news and who's going to rally the nations to himself, that um, he does this again on a mountain. And that mountain of Zion is lifted up and all the nations of the world are going to stream to that mountain and who are going to come to that king and hear his message. And that's exactly what's going on in the background to the Sermon on the Mount. So that's uh, by way of um, just sort of a general introduction to uh, the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount has been called, uh, in general, the Manifesto of Jesus. It has been compared to um, kind of a, uh, the constitution of Jesus given to the people of God. And so um, this is why we're spending some time looking at the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, because it'll set the stage for what we do in the weeks to follow. Now, way back when, in December, it was at the end of November, we heard two messages, one from Logan and one from Roger, that talked about the Beatitudes. And I listened to those messages again with admiration and gratitude uh, this week, and um, I, I want to, to pick up on them and simply to review them for you. And I have uh, the Beatitudes uh, summarized here. Uh, Jake, I'm looking at you just to get confirmation that you can still see the screen and the, and the material on the, uh, on the word. Good. Okay, good. Well, the Beatitudes come in verses 2 to 12. And I've said already, they're a surprise. Um, we would be expecting Jesus to begin by saying, blessed are those who obey my laws, uh, for they will grow, like it said in Psalm 1. But instead, Jesus is addressing um, and using terms that strike us. And the contradiction is not something, uh, the tension is not something that was lost on Roger or Logan or me or anyone else. These are surprising things. And we want to just take a look uh, once again and uh, remind ourselves of the message of these. And I want also to add another factor about them. The first uh, several are in the third person. Uh, the first um, eight are in the are in the third person, um, and they, they by the third person I mean they. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And that first statement of theirs is the kingdom of God in verse three parallels the eighth statement: theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the first beatitude and the eighth beatitude form a kind of sandwich. And there's a statement that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, this is probably a future reference like the others are, but it's such a certain thing that it's described as if it's present. Jesus is saying to those who are poor in spirit uh, and are longing for the kingdom, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I mean, if you're longing for it and you want it, it's as though as it's already there. And then he switches to the, uh, to the future tense. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be sated. Blessed are the merciful, they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. 
Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called God's children. And then finally, to sandwich off those first eight uh, Beatitudes, uh, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, we learned from Roger and Logan last uh, time when we looked at the Beatitudes that um, the first four are distinctive from the second four. Um, and some people feel as though the first four are addressed to the needy and that the second four, the, the second four are more addressed to the practices of the followers of Jesus. Some people feel as though the first four are directed towards um, the attitude that we are to have um, towards, uh, towards, towards humanity, and in the other case, uh, more towards a disposition that we're to have towards God. Um, but what I would like us to notice before we come to the message of the Beatitudes and to summarize them is, and this is a lead-in to verses 13 to 16, with the ninth Beatitude, there is a change from the third person plural to the second person plural. Jesus says, Blessed are you who are persecuted, slandered on my behalf. Um, and, and then he says, rejoice and be glad, for so were the prophets who came before you. When we look at verse at the eighth beatitude, we notice that the theme of persecution is introduced. But now it's as though Jesus is switching from addressing um, people in general who aspire to follow Jesus, and people in general who find themselves in great need of Jesus, Jesus is switching his focus now to the disciples. And he's kind of pointing at you, and he's pointing, in effect, at us. And so um, he says um, in verse uh, 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Just before we come to verses 13 to 16, I want you to notice the wording that I've underlined in the ninth beatitude, verses 11 to 12. For your reward will be great, for so were the prior prophets, so were the prophets who were before you. If Jesus is now zeroing in on the disciples and addressing them in the second person, you, he's looking at them and describing them as though they are prophets. Well, it's easy to see the link because if you know anything about the Old Testament prophets, they were proclaimers of the covenant uh, at their great expense. Um, they often were um, beaten up, uh, thrown, in, thrown in pits, thrown in prison, persecuted for um, being uh, prophets on behalf of God. So uh, let's summarize the message of the Beatitudes. And some of this uh, will be uh, new and some of it uh, will be uh, rehearsal. Um, we heard from Roger and Logan, um, what is uh, the standard and correct interpretation of the Beatitudes to be sure, that they are statements about the ideal character of a Jesus follower. Let me see if I can put that in, um, in, in, uh, in uh, blue here. Yeah, these are statements about the ideal character of a Jesus follower. And as both Roger and Logan pointed out, 
This is a character that's exemplified everywhere in Matthew by Jesus. Um, Jesus just embodies all of the things that he's talking about in this list. And so um, we can take assurance that Jesus as the pioneer and perfecter of our faith has gone before us and who exemplifies these behaviors, which are so hard to emulate, including, for example, perfection, which we're told to be. There's a challenge. But I think that the answer is the perfection lies in the fact that Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. But what I want us to draw attention to and to take extra comfort from this afternoon is uh, this part, that these Beatitudes are a surprise. Notice that, um, as I said, we expect Jesus to jump right into obeying the law, as we saw in Psalm 1. But instead, Jesus reaches out to people and he says, are you having a hard time? Are you poor in spirit? Are you crying over what's been going on in your life? I want you to know that the kingdom of heaven is for you. And so what Jesus is doing is he's reaching out in compassion to the crowds who are stricken and who are afflicted, while at the same time holding in balance this kind of character emulation for the disciples. And this is an incredible act of grace. It's a surprise. Jesus, as it, was, as it were, is at the same time as he's emulating behaviors that were to emulate, is speaking to the people. And, Jeff, and after all, Jesus has just ministered to their needs. He's taken people who were afflicted and healed them. Um, he will take the hungry and feed them. He'll take the persecuted and comfort them. And so Jesus is reaching out in the first instance with compassion and saying, friends, and we can say the same to ourselves as Christians. Um, are you hung up about the fact that you're not a particularly uh, virtuous person? I know. This is for you. Have you had a dreadful month, a dreadful year, just beyond belief in terms of tragedy and frustration? I want you to know that I hear you and that the kingdom of God is for people like you. So here's where we find, once again, Jesus bringing the high standards of the law right alongside compassion in the same way that he did in John's gospel in chapter 8 with the woman who was caught in adultery. Jesus had compassion on her. And he said, neither do I condemn you. There's compassion. But go and sin no more. He's upholding the law at the same time. So that's a bit of a background, I think, and it helps explain why we find the Beatitudes so confusing and so challenging. Some of them don't seem to be very ideal at all, but the, 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 the ideal character nature of them was explained well uh, by Logan and by Roger. And I'm simply wanting to add to it that Jesus is extending compassion and reaching out to those around him who are afflicted and poor. Here is... Um, a, a, a summary statement of, well, um, I know I just, just let me, let me leave it at that and go down to footnote one. All right. I may get some really interesting feedback about the value of using a detailed outline like this. Um, you can fire me, I suppose, but you'd have to find a new interim rector and you're already going to have a hard enough time finding a full-time rector. So um, um, allow me to have my fun here. Um, one commentator says, the Beatitudes come between chapter 4, verses 23 and 5-2, and between chapter 5, verses th 13 and 16. The former, 423 to 5-2, 
provide a context of grace in that God has acted in Jesus to bring healing to those in need. That's what he does. His ministry in Galilee started by uh, healing people and crowds drew to him. And then the latter in 13 to 16, the salt and light passage, are a heading to the hortatory that follows, um, that we too are to, um, are to let our lights shine, and we too are to be salt of the earth, that the world might be changed. So he continues, structurally, the Beatitudes come before the commands given in the Sermon on the Mount proper. In other words, the Beatitudes are separated from the main body of the imperatives, the commands. It is only after hearing the comforting words of chapter 5, verses 3 to 12, words that tell of rewards that human beings cannot create for themselves, but can only receive as gifts from God, that one is confronted by Messiah's demands. So when Jesus speaks in 5, 3 to 12, the chief result is not the burdening of the faithful with moral imperatives, rather 5, 3 to 12 instead brings solace. So there's comfort and challenge that finds uh, that, that can be found in these, in these Beatitudes. All right, well, let's go now to uh, verses 13 to 16. Um, and um, before I, I do that, I simply want to kind of elaborate on the bridge. Item number C, two identity statements as a prelude to marching orders are verses 13 to 16, which we're now gonna consider. But uh, let me read what one scholar says about the Sermon on the Mount. And in some ways, it's a summary of what I um, uh, have said and shall say. Like many of the prophets before him, so this scholar writes, especially Isaiah, Jesus is pronouncing that a new era is coming and is in fact here. But unlike these prophets, Jesus is doing more than faithfully delivering a message he received from God. You see, Moses proclaimed the words of God, but Jesus is more, and he elaborates. He, that is Jesus, will be depicted as the arbiter of this message, not just its messenger. He is seated as a teacher on a mountain while people stream to him. He is intentionally gathering crowds, calling people to leave what they're doing to follow him. And he will later clarify that he has, in fact, created a new community. Now we come to verses 13 to 16. And we will not spend a great deal of time on them, but I want to do some justice to them because they form a bridge between these gracious, demanding beatitudes and Jesus laying down the law, as it were. And so um, I've translated these verses as follows, and I hope you'll be able to see it on the screen. It is you who are the salt of the earth. And if the salt should fault, how shall it be salty again? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And then in verse 14, we have another statement that's exactly like the beginning of verse 13. It is you who are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp that is set under a grain basket, but rather on the lampstand, and it illumines all those in the house. Similarly, and here comes the exhortation, let your light shine before people so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. How are we to have an impact for Jesus, to the glory of God and for the sake of his kingdom? We are to let our light shine before people publicly 
so that they may see our good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven. A few uh, notes about verses 13 and 16 I want to draw your attention to in the footnotes. Uh, one of them I've already done, but let me go down to verses to footnotes two and three. I translated, it is you who are the salt of the earth because the word you is emphasized in the Greek. Jesus is not saying that he's the salt of the earth or he is the light of the world, which of course he is, but he's saying you are. Wow. That's amazing because the images of salt and light, particularly light, are used of the law, they're used of the temple, they're used of the people of Israel, they're later used in Judaism for the synagogue, but Jesus is turning to these ragtag followers of Jesus, including me and you, and saying, you are the light of the world, you are the salt of the earth. I, I translated salt as fault uh, in this line here, in verse 13, if the salt should fault, how shall it be salty again? The word to become salty again is a word that is related to the word for foolish in Greek. And so that was a, a, an attempt to try to, to pass on that, um, that word meaning. And so when Jesus is saying these words, as it were, when he says, if the, fault, if, if the salt should fault, he's saying, don't lose your salt, because to do, lose your salt would be a foolish fault. So we are the salt of the earth, and we're not to lose our saltiness. We are the light of the world as well. So what are the salt and the light? These metaphors are obviously crucial, and they have been the subject of a lot of debate through time. And uh, if we were to begin with salt, um, I think I ended up with a list in my notes of uh, 10 different possibilities for the meaning of salt. An ingredient for sacrifices, uh, tied to the covenant, a means of purifying things, a means of flavoring things. It's connected to the motif of peace and friendship, as uh, one finds in Mark 9 and in Colossians 4, 6. It's used for preserving things, for fertilizing, for symbolizing what is essential for life in the book of Sirach, for permanency, and for the covenant between God and his people. And another writes, it distinguishes the medium from that into which it's put. So what do we do with the vast array of images relating to salt? Well, some sermons uh, favor one over the other, and that's a bit risky. More recent commentators have decided that the best thing to do is to go to the light, to the light motif, which is much more clear, and to understand the salt motif in light of the light motif. And at best, would be simply to generalize about the salt. So I think probably one of the best ways to generalize about the salt is that it's something distinctive. It's something important. And it's something uh, that um, has effect. And so we are told uh, to be distinctive. We are told uh, to do that which is important and to be that which stands out and to have an effect. But to get to the bottom line, as it were, and our time is passing, I know this, when we look at both the salt imagery and the light imagery, we see that they do come together. They come together in a way that resonates with the prior context that we see in Matthew's gospel. 
Let me uh, underscore that the meaning of salt in one case, as I mentioned right at the beginning, was that it is used in the contexts of forming a covenant. And actually it is an ingredient that is used for making sacrifices pure. Leviticus 2.13, for example, says, you shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain. Exodus 43, 23 to 24 says, and on the second day, you shall offer a male goat without blemish for a sin offering, and the altar shall be purified as it was purified with the bull. When you have finished purifying it, you shall offer a bull from the herd without blemish and a ram from the flock without blemish. You shall present them before the Lord and the priests shall sprinkle salt on them. In Numbers 18 and 19, um, it says, all the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord, I give to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord and for your offspring with you. So there's lots that we can glean from the salt imagery and from the light imagery. There's a nice list of light imagery as well that includes knowledge, truth, revelation, love. Um, it's a, similar, a simile for those who are imparting knowledge to others as kind of missionaries, as it were. But the basic meaning of the light of the world in this context, I think, takes us back to that third motif that I talked about at the beginning of the sermon. And that third motif was that of Jesus being a, prof a prophet who fulfills the message of Isaiah that is given to the Gentiles. And that message we saw I quoted in Matthew chapter 4, for example, Jesus moves into, into Gentile territory, and he talks about and quotes Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, which says, the land of Zebulun in the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them, a light has dawned. So if we are to summarize uh, the meanings of uh, salt and light, let me move down. Um, I've indicated that the best individual choice for salt, and I'm just reviewing here, is being distinctive and vital. The best choice for light of the world is to mean that Jesus is here pointing to his Gentile mission when the gospel was taken beyond the land of Israel to the whole world. So if we're to combine these two metaphors, here I think is what Jesus is telling us. Both are metaphors for us being heralds of the new eternal covenant brought into being by Jesus. And so the language of persecution that is spoken of in relation to the prophets applies to us because as the prophets of old were persecuted for being arbiters of the old covenant, so too persecution might well befall us as arbiters and ambassadors of the new covenant. Well, my friends, what Jesus is telling us is something awesome and um, it's hard to take in. He's saying that we are the salt of the world or we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. And that Jesus is really putting it upon us to step forth in courage 
and to be light unto the world, to practice those good deeds before others so that people can't help but say, you know, there's something different about those Christians. That's where the message really comes home, I think, and that's where we stand the best choice or chance, ideally, of sharing the message of the kingdom, is by being that salt and by being that light. There's a famous old story of D.L. Moody, uh, who, of whom it is uh, said that um, he said, the world has yet to see uh, someone whose heart is fully dedicated to God. I, by God's grace, intend to be that person. Bonhoeffer said, when Jesus calls the disciples his salt instead of himself, he transfers his efficacy on earth to us, and he brings us into his work. But he warns, the call of Jesus Christ means being salt of the earth or being destroyed. My friends, we have a dangerous task, but it's one that's crucial for the world to hear. And by God's grace and with his empowerment, we have the privilege of being ambassadors of that new covenant. May God help us to be so and to provide us strength to be salt and light unto the world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.